As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honey. By them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Teach that word to us now by your spirit, we pray, and show us Christ, for we ask these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 10 at verse 17. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on many of them at page 1076. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So we're going to begin our reading at Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and read through verse 27. So Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we come this morning to a well-known story, I think probably well-known to most of us who know our Bibles well. Uh, it's known to us because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount this story. It's from those other gospel accounts that we add the detail that he was a ruler. That's something that Mark does not tell us. So this story has become known as the rich young ruler. Um, If we just looked at Mark, it would just be the rich young dude. But um, we know that this is the rich young ruler. That's the story. We know the story. Um, If we're familiar with our Bibles, we know this account. And this account is given to us uh, to be really, in Mark's gospel in particular, an application of all that Jesus has been teaching. 
we've been noticing as we've gone along that one of the emphases that Mark has, the emphasis that Mark is particularly doing here has been to say what it costs to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. And so as this man comes seeking to be a disciple, uh, his story really serves as a practical application of everything that Jesus has been saying about discipleship. Um, It's a story that illustrates the point that Jesus has been making about being his disciples and what it means to follow him. And that's why this story comes where it does in Mark's gospel as really an illustration and application of the things Jesus has been saying about what is required to follow him. And through this interaction, through this exchange with this young man, Jesus is teaching something important about his kingdom and how one enters it. Um, And he is reaffirming for us the truth that we can only enter the kingdom of God by following him. There is no other way to enter the kingdom. There is no other way to find life than by following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is really about. That's what's being taught here. Um, And how do we see this playing out in this section of Mark's gospel? We see this first through an earnest question, the earnest question that is put to Jesus by this young man. And Jesus responds with an essential command, a command that's essential for all disciples of Jesus Christ. And then in response to how the disciples react to this story, he offers the exclusive hope that can be found in him. And that's how we want to think about this section together, an earnest question, an essential command, and an exclusive hope. That's how we want to think about this. And so the passage starts with this man asking Jesus a question. But before we think about the question that this young man puts to our Lord, it's important for us to think about where this story comes in the gospel. Mark gives us the setting of the story right here at the beginning. Um, We're told, as Jesus was setting out on his journey. Um, Where is he setting out from? Um, He's setting out from the place he's just been, uh, where he's been blessing the children. Right, that beautiful scene in Mark's gospel where Jesus blesses all the little children that are brought to him. And it was at that place that Jesus taught them important things about how you enter the kingdom of God. Remember, he had said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will certainly not enter it. Um, That's an important teaching that Jesus made there. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you receive it like a little child. And we talked about that when we went through that section of Mark's gospel, that to receive the kingdom of God like a child really really means to surrender ourselves to the Lord. To recognize that we are dead in our sin and misery, that we cannot save ourselves, and that we receive from him all that we need for salvation. By grace through faith, we come to the Lord. We repent of our sins. We respond to his grace by our grateful obedience and service to him. We have to surrender ourselves to Jesus to recognize that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That's the important context in which this question is asked to Jesus. Because Jesus has really just told us what is required to enter the kingdom. And that's the equivalent of eternal life. Um, To enter the kingdom is to find life. Um, And so it's in the context of that story that we've just heard. 
Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, that a man comes running up to him and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, We have to understand the context in which this is coming if we really want to understand the question and the answer that Jesus gives. Um, He clearly comes eagerly, runs up to Jesus, respectfully falls on his knees, earnestly asking him this question, acknowledging that he is a good teacher and that what he says should be listened to, and he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. Uh, That's the question that he puts to the Lord. And you notice how our Lord first interacts with the way he puts the question. Because he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you notice how Jesus does not allow that address to remain uncommented upon. Uh, remember, look how Jesus responds to that address. Um, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this has been a source of a lot of mischief in the history of the church. Arians pointed to this text to say, see, Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He says only God is good, and he doesn't claim to be good here. Uh, so that must prove that he's not really God. There's a, and there have been people who, B.B. Warfield wrote a long discor- discourse covering mostly that question on this text. It made for really interesting reading this week. I'm not sure it helped me a whole lot in my sermon because it was a point I don't think that we want to go down the road of necessarily. You notice Jesus never says, I'm not good. He wants to know why the man would call him good. He's bringing into focus this man's conception of goodness. Because that's really where his problem lies, isn't it? As we see clearly as the story goes on, it's his conception of goodness that Jesus wants to highlight. How do you understand goodness? Because if we understand it correctly, we recognize that only God is good. And if only God is good, that means that we are not And it means that any goodness that is in us has to come from him as the only source of everything good. Jesus is trying to teach him right from the beginning that he has a fatally flawed view of what goodness is. He doesn't understand it. His understanding of goodness is too shallow. If it has to come from God, then any notion of self-achieved goodness is out the window. If only God is good, then only he can be the source of any good. And any good we have cannot be ours really, but has to be a gift from him. Do you see how Jesus from the very beginning is focusing on, on this man's conception of goodness? And he does that before he addresses his question. And the question is important. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to know what I have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question. Do you want to know what you have to do to inherit the law? You have to do the law. That's why he immediately goes to the law. If you want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life, you know the commandments. You know what the law requires. 
That's the law. It tells you what you must do if you are to inherit eternal life. The law was very clear about that. Leviticus 18.5 said, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Right? So Jesus is just directing him to what the Bible says. If you want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life, you need to do the law. Moses was very clear about that. But not only in Leviticus 18, but in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And John Calvin, I think, helpfully comments on this and says, the law is unquestionably the way of life to those who seek life by their own doing. If you want to seek life by your own doing, you have to do the law. That was Paul's point in Romans 2, 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So Jesus says to him, you know the law. If you want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life, you know the law. You know its commandments. And he lists the second table of the law really there. And so being confronted with the law, how does this young man respond? In verse 20, all this I have kept from my youth. Well, I've done the law. What else do you have? Um, I've done everything. I've done what has been required of me under the law. I've kept these things. And what do we see? Just sort of like I said when we were reading the law this morning, he shows by by his response that he has failed to understand the law. And that he has failed to let the law do its proper work in his life. He's held up the law as a mirror to his life and found himself perfect. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that. And it would be easy for someone to say, well, it's through the illumination of the New Testament that we understand the law shows us our sin and our need of Christ. We read from Romans, and, and you know, this, this poor man doesn't have Romans, so what is he supposed to do? But the Old Testament taught this fact, that the law should show you that you are not good. There are a number of examples we could point to, but I think one will suffice from Uh, Psalm 14, 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. He should have known better that the law reveals that there is no one who does good good. The law should have told him that it is the way of life to those who do it, but it should have shown him that he doesn't do it, that he doesn't actually do the law. That's the proper work of the law. It should show us our own lack. Again, Calvin is helpful. The purpose of the law is to bring men to self-denial and to show us that we are liable to the judgment of God. And yet this man looks at the law and he only feels assured. He only feels that he has kept it. And I think the Holy Spirit is doing something important for all of us here and again showing us the deceitful nature of sin. 
that it's so easy for us to be ignorant of ourselves and ignorant of our need. We can be ignorant of what we're like and we can be satisfied in our ignorance. And if we don't understand the extent of what God's law is commanding us to do, we won't understand ourselves and we won't understand our danger. This man has no idea how much danger he's in by adopting this attitude. By not recognizing that he stands condemned by the law as a sinner. And it's so important because if you don't understand the situation about yourself and about your danger, you don't really understand what you need. Right? If we're basically good, we just need a little more help to get ourselves over the edge. That seems to be where he's coming from in his heart. Right? There's something in him that says, I've done everything the law has asked me to do, and yet I don't feel like I have eternal life. And when a good teacher passes through and might be able to tell me how to achieve it, i got to go find out what's the thing that's still lacking. Because I feel like I do the law, but I don't feel like I have life. Right? And that's the problem. He doesn't really understand what he needs. He doesn't need something he can do. There's nothing that he can do. And that's the problem. If we don't understand ourselves and we don't understand what we need, we won't understand how desperately we are in need of a Savior. I think J.C. Raw was exactly right. He said, ignorance of the law and ignorance of the gospel will generally be found together. When our eyes are open to the spirituality of the commands, we will never rest till we find Christ. If we don't understand our need according to the law, we'll never understand what the gospel means and why we need a savior. And it's wonderful how Jesus responds to this man's earnest question with the essential command that he gives him. What he tells him to do and what he definitely needs to hear. Jesus says to him in verse 21. But before Mark gives us the answer that Jesus makes to the man, he tells us something wonderful about Jesus' attitude towards him. You notice that beautiful statement in verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. I have to confess, as I was reading this, it was just another conviction to me of how unlike Jesus I am. This will come as a shock to nobody who's sitting in the pews, but um, it, it brought me under conviction because I thought, if I were Jesus and he had said this to me, I would resent it. Right? Think of what he's saying and who he's saying it to. He's just heard the law and said, I've kept all of that from my youth. That's not true. He's failed in many ways. And who is he saying that to? He's saying that to the only person who ever kept the law perfectly from his youth. Who knows what it is to love the Lord with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love his neighbor as as himself in thought and word and deed every moment of his life. He's talking to that only one person and saying, yeah, you and me are like that. We're the same. If I were Jesus in that moment, I would resent that. And I think my attitude would be, young man, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
You have no idea what's required of what you're saying. But is that how the Lord reacts? He doesn't react with resentment. He doesn't react with anger. He looks at him and he loves him. It's a conviction of how much I'm not like Jesus and how much work I need to do to be loving the way the Lord is loving because he looks at him and he loves him. He loves him. Um, I think we are getting a window into the heart of our Lord and what his people ought to look like. I think it's easy for us in these evil days to look at the world and just be angry and just be resentful, um, to not like what we see and to just be upset by it. We live in a culture that's in many ways a grievance culture, and we don't want to be a grievance church. What is the better path our Lord shows us here? To look at the lost and to love them. To look at the lost and to have compassion on them. As one person put it, it's a reminder that the heart of Jesus is a wide heart. He has an abundance of pity, compassion, and tender concern even for those who are following sin and the world. And that should be an encouragement for us when we come to Jesus in our self-forgetfulness and in our self-reliance that we find his loving heart willing to embrace us. It's love that motivates what he says to the man in verse 21. It's love that leads him to make the command to him that he makes. And what is the essence of the command that Jesus says to him? A lot of the focus is on his call to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I think we tend to focus on that part of the command. I don't think that's actually the essence of the command that Jesus gives. I think the essence of the command is there at the end of verse 21. Come, follow me. That's really the command that Jesus is making to this young man. Come here and follow me. In love, he's saying, brother, you have no idea what you really are asking for. You really don't. The question is wrong. The attitude is wrong. But let me help you. If you really want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, you have to come to me and follow me. You have to come to me and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the essence of the command that he gives. Remember, as we've gone on, we've said the, the, equivalent that Je- the equivalence that Jesus has made between eternal life and entering the kingdom of God. And so when the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's really saying, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And we've already heard what is required to enter the kingdom of God. You have to receive it like a child. It's not something that can be earned. It's only something that can be received. Unless you think I profited nothing from the B.B. Warfield article, he said helpfully, receiving the kingdom of God like a child means to receive it passively as a pure recipient, not the earner of its blessings. You don't earn the kingdom by coming to Jesus, but it's the only way to receive the kingdom is to come to Jesus and to follow him. 
to come and receive what Jesus is offering. He's offering what the young man wants. He's offering eternal life. Come to me, follow me, and you'll find it. You'll find life. You'll receive what I'm offering. You'll receive what you want. You'll inherit eternal life if you come and follow me. But there's a condition that comes along with this command. And it's essential because it's what's hindering him from coming. What does Jesus say as a condition of coming to him and following him? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's very clear what Jesus is saying is sell everything you have and give everything to the poor. Uh, Hold nothing back. Now why does he give this command? Is this a general proposition? Maybe some of you are sweating because you think the application of this sermon is going to be now you have to go out and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Um, No, as one pastor said, you don't treat the same disease, you don't treat every disease with the same medicine. Different diseases need different medicines. What is this man's problem? His riches are hindering him from coming to Christ. His riches are interfering with his willingness to come and follow Jesus. That's why Jesus says to him, you have to give them up. You have to give them up. It also puts to the test, really, doesn't it, the claim that he's made that he's been a perfect keeper of the law. Because here stands before him God, saying to him, I want you to love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And so do that by doing what I'm telling you to do. Are you really one who wants to obey the Lord and do his will? But again, the love of the Lord is motivating to say, this is the very thing that's keeping you from following me. You need to give it up. You need to give it up. You say you want eternal life, and I'm offering it to you. Right? Jesus doesn't only say, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. That's not the only thing he says, right, in verse 21. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and I will give you treasure in heaven. It's not merely being asked to give up treasure. It's give up the treasure of this world to gain the treasure of heaven. It's not a cost without a return. He's not just asking him to become a debtor. He's saying give what you can't keep as has been said, to gain what you can't lose. I'll give you the life you want. I'll give you treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. It's what Jesus is offering him. You know, he's saying to the man, you know you don't have it. That's why you came to me. And I'll give you what you're looking for. Come and follow me, and you'll find that treasure that you're seeking. But you have to give up what's keeping you from coming, what's keeping you from following. That's what makes this command for him so essential, because it's the only way to find what he wants.
we're being told here, you can't hedge your bets when you come to the Lord. You can't put one hand on Christ and keep one hand on the world. It involves surrendering all to come and follow him. And what was keeping this young man from following was his wealth. But it's a reminder that there may be other things that we are holding on to that we are unwilling to give up to come and follow Jesus. We should be applying this test to our own hearts. If we've been unwilling to come to Jesus and follow him, what's hindering us from coming? What are we trying to hold on to? What are we saying to Jesus? You know, Lord, I'll give you anything else that you want, but just not that. I'm willing to follow you and to give up almost all. But there's some of this that I would like to hold on to. Um, if there's anything that's hindering us from coming to the Lord and to, following, and to follow him, we have to give it up. It's essential. There's no other way than by coming to Christ, listening to his call to follow him, and being willing to leave behind anything to follow him. And then we have his assurance that if we do, we will find treasure from heaven, we will find eternal life, we will find salvation. It's not a cost without a return. But if we're unwilling to do that, then sadly we end up where this young man ends up. Because how does he respond to that call? When eternal life is offered to him, How does he respond? Verse 22 is so profoundly sad, isn't it? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. As one person put it, the hope went out of his heart and the light faded from his eager face. And Mark tells us for the first time that he was rich. The Holy Spirit is a master storyteller. He doesn't give that detail till right here at the end. And then it puts a fine point on what Jesus is asking him, doesn't it? To give up all that he has and to follow him. Um, and at the end of the day, he's unwilling to do it. Again, I think Warfield is so insightful. He says the rich young man was used to being able to acquire for himself what he wanted. But when he found that what he had thought so easy to acquire was to be had at only a great price, it was a price which he was unwilling to pay. The kingdom of God is not a thing into which, in any case, men can buy their way. He said he wanted it, but when it was offered to him, he didn't want it. He turned it away. And as many commentators meditate on this, there are many sad things that they say. One said he loved his money better than he loved his soul. Another said he kept his possessions, but he lost his Christ. It's a sad commentary that when he was called to lay aside what was hindering him from following, he chose to hold on to it and not to follow. And Jesus then turns to think about this situation with the disciples, and that's when he shows them the exclusive hope that we can find can only be found in God. After this young man leaves, goes away, does not listen to the call to follow Jesus, 
Jesus turns to his disciples and says what he says in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And what does the Bible tell us about their reaction? The disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed at his words. Um, Why would they be amazed that Jesus would say something like that? It's because of their cultural conception of wealth. They thought wealth has to be an example of how the Lord has blessed faithful people. Isn't that what the the principle that was taught in the covenant in the Old Testament, that the, the better you are, the more you keep the covenant, that prosperity will flow to you? And so they'd been used to thinking of the rich as the people who must be obeying God the most. That was very common in the society, to think the rich by their good works have earned this blessedness from God. And so for Jesus to say it's particularly difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God would have gone totally against what the disciples had ever thought or been taught. That's that's why it's so shocking to them. Because they would have thought if anyone would get into the kingdom of God, it would be the wealthy, the people that God has blessed the most on account of their good work. It's not just a modern phenomenon to have a kind of prosperity gospel. It was operating in their hearts and minds. Right? It's, if you're blind, it's because you did something wrong or your parents did something wrong. If you're wealthy, it must be because you did something right. So for Jesus to come and say, it's particularly difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. They found that shocking. They found that absolutely shocking. And Jesus does not do anything to relieve their difficulty, does he? After they experience that shock... He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever tried to put a piece of thread through a needle? I have. Um, I haven't done it too many times, but I've done it. It's hard. Um, Now think kids are trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle. The eye of a needle is one of the smallest openings they could think of, and a camel is one of the biggest animals they could think of. And so it was meant to indicate a kind of impossibility. It's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that just leads to more shock on their parts. They were exceedingly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? If the rich can't get in, with all their good work, how can anyone get in? What hope is there for anyone else if not even the rich, with all their good works, can enter in? And that's when Jesus really is pointing them to the exclusive hope that you have. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He's driving home the point What must I do to inherit eternal life? You and I will never be able to do it. We will never be able to do what's necessary for us to inherit eternal life. For us, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. For God, all things are possible. They had to have borne in on them the impossibility of doing what God has called us to do so they might look for hope not in themselves but in God. And it's really the one standing before them saying these things to them that makes it possible for them to inherit eternal life. 
And how did he do it? How did Jesus make it possible? By giving up everything he had. He gave up his place in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He gave up his glory. He took on a human nature, adding that to his divine nature forever. In body and soul, he became a servant, and then he gave up the body and he gave up the soul in death on the cross to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave up all he had. He gave up all he had so that he could do what was necessary for us to inherit eternal life. Because we could not do it, he did it. By his perfect life, and by his sacrificial death, and by his glorious resurrection, he did what was necessary that we might inherit eternal life. And our loving Lord empowers us by his spirit so that when he says, come and follow me, we hear the voice of our Savior speaking and we come and we follow. That is no less an act of miraculous divine grace than anything else God has done in the world. That we should hear him and obey him. We could not do that if he had not given us a heart to love and ears to hear and feet to come. Only the Lord could do that for us. What was impossible for us, he has made possible as our good God. May we all hear his voice speaking to us this morning. Because he says to everyone here, come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. You will have life. You will have the kingdom. You will have salvation. Come and follow me. May he open our hearts by his spirit that we might hear his call and follow him and live forever. Amen.